Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. In each episode, I present a small batch of theory and practices behind building a high-velocity software organization. Topics include DevOps, Lean, software architecture, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to Small Batches. Today, I am speaking with Brian Finster about development environments. It seems like there's always more that I can say about development environments and the general approach to the daily work of creating software. I think that the decisions around how code is written, the boundaries between other teams, the reliance on integrated versus isolated environments, you know, thinking in terms of owning a service, working on a distributed system, you know, all this stuff is so important and relevant to the daily work of anybody building a system with more than one service or especially, you know, more than one team or pod or however you want to call your organization design but this is just a hobby horse that I can keep going back to because I think that it's so important to, to get right because everything that you do in software development flows through how you actually build code, test it, and all of that. So today I'm speaking with Brian Finster about this topic. Brian is you know, a multi-talented guy. He's been working as a software engineer since 1996, mostly in the supply chain space. When I recorded this interview, he was leading a DevOps dojo for a Fortune 50 enterprise where he partnered with teams to learn teamwork, develop techniques, and the discipline required to developer to deliver to production daily. I really like his focus on delivering daily and this comes up again in the conversation which is just focusing on well you know small batches frequent releases continuous integration and really trying to just do what we call today as devops so i thought he would be a good guy to you know talk about development environments and get his perspective on trying to scale the practices of you know creating isolated development environments across a much larger organization a much larger team you know, scaling out the number of services and uh, all of that. And he brought up some stuff that I never, some technology, some tools I never heard before. So all in all, it was a great conversation. And if you want to learn more about Brian, you can find the links to his pages on smallbatches.fm. And also go find his uh, talks on YouTube. He's uh, spoken at uh, the DevOps uh, Enterprise Summit. And I know now that he's also involved with the Better, Sooner, Safer group on LinkedIn around uh, Jonathan Smart's book. So all around interesting guy and a smart guy too. So with that, I give you my conversation with Brian Finster. Brian, welcome to Small Batches. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I and invited you on the show due to your work leading uh, DevOps dojos that would be good to add some context listener for the type of exercises you do in these dojos and the type of uh, teams that you work with in your dojo. Yeah, so uh, a DevOps dojo, uh, I mean, what we do, and even broadly, just more all dojos in general that are done correctly, 
we're an immersive learning environment where we work with teams in the context of their work to help them learn how to work better, you know, help them solve problems, you know, and it could be that they need to build pipelines. It could be they need to know how to test better. In our context, we focus on how do we, uh, how do we get you through to continuous delivery? You know, why can't we go to production today? Let's find out what those problems are and help solve them together. So it's not a, it's not a situation where we're like, directing teams or, you know, beating up bad teams. It's teams come to us for help. We pair with those teams and we join those teams uh, and help them out directly. Also, more broadly, we help restructure the organization when that's the problem the teams are having. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, usually those two things are related, right? Yeah. So what kind of technical problems do you see sort of on a recurring basis that teams come to you with and say, hey, we don't know how to solve this or like this is blocking our ability to work quickly. What are some of the common things there? You know, honestly, it's mostly not technical. Hmm. I was talking to Scott Mastello at, at Nike a while back, and he said that we should have gone to psychology school. He said, we're trying to hack the biggest undocumented API. That really the problem generally is we as engineers haven't been taught how to work effectively as teams. Hmm. And that we see a few very common problems through teams. They don't know how to test very well, generally because they've been brought up in a situation where testing is for testers. You can't be trusted to test. You're a developer. Mm. They don't know how to break down work very well because no one's really focused on continuous integration much, uh, which also impacts testing because you can't test well if the work's not broken down well. They don't know how to work well as teams because they've been incentivized to, you know, hey, we've got 20 stories this sprint, and there's five people on the team. So here's your four stories, go deliver those. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it's supposed to work. That you don't get good teamwork, you don't get good quality, uh, you don't get happy customers that way. But that's how everyone's taught because it's good for HR. Mm-hmm. And so these are just really common problems. Testing is uh, core to what we do. You have to live and breathe testing every single moment. And it's the, the top topic I talk about all the time. Yeah. Well, I always like to talk to people who harp on testing because I think testing is uh, really it's the like the P0 of all of the work that we do, because if you don't have, you know, high quality automated tests then you won't be able to achieve anything else that predicates on that, like continuous delivery, continuous deployment, like let alone like the higher level business objectives. But, you know, you'll be stuck in, you know, workflows that are centered around maybe manual testing, more gates and approvals and everything will start to slow down. This goes in the wrong direction. I take it the next level that you can't do manual testing. It's an oxymoron because a test is repeatable, Hmm. right? If it fails, you should be able to repeat the exact same thing and and find out why. Well, you can't do that manually. It's impossible. People cannot repeat themselves. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting. So what I wanted to talk to you about today was a challenge that I've seen many teams encounter. And I think it also leads to a sort of kind of a pushback or frustration with microservices, which Mm -hmm. is how do teams and individuals work with microservice architecture in development environments? So I'm coming at this from the perspective of, let's say that you're working in a small team. This could be a team in, you know, a whole organization or even like a single team in a larger organization, right? Where that team starts they do a monolith, it grows, and then at some point in time, they decide to split off a new thing, they make a new service, and you know they were used to 
say, running this monolith on their machine, doing a development environment. Maybe they run their tests there. Maybe the application is running in a browser. They like, you know, they hit refresh, they interact with the application, they get used to this workflow of everything running on their machine. Yeah. But then it now depends on service B. And then the thing is, okay, well, then do I run service B on my machine? Or like what happens if service B is outside of, is maintained outside of my team? Like where is that coming from? Like am I responsible for that? And like what happens in my experience is that it's a really an untenable assumption or approach from the beginning. But as you expand out from like service B and service C and service D, even mm-hmm. if it was theoretically possible, like for compute requirements, or whatever, to run them on, the, on your machine, are you even responsible for that? Do you even know enough about all those different components to create this, you know, fully integrated environment to, you know, develop your system before you get to production? So I'm curious, have you encountered this problem in your, do- <laughs> in your dojos or like if people come to you with this problem, what kind of solutions do you advise? Yeah, it's, it's something I run into all the time that people feel like they have to have an entire system put together complete to test any part of the system. And, you know, I start challenging them things, you know, uh, very rarely do I run into systems where there are hard boundaries. You know, if you look at, uh, well, I, not to go into details, but if you look at some of the systems I deal with all the time, they'll say, well, we have to test the entire system. And so we have to have everything put together. It's like, well, what about the upstream systems that are an entirely different area of the company that you depend on? Why aren't you joining those in? What about the downstream systems that are receiving that data so they can do something so we can sell things? You're not talking to them. So you're not really doing an end-to-end test. You're just arbitrarily saying we need this giant thing with giant failure surface area mm. to all come together and try to test it. So it's really slow and fragile. And then you don't trust the test. So it doesn't matter anyway. No, I run into it all the time. Yeah. And you know what I, what I find, you know, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. They started building a monolith and they said, well, now we need another thing, but they didn't do intentional design. Mm. You know, they didn't, they didn't design for what they were trying to do. I mean, architecture is a thing. And it's not a thing that happens in ivory towers. It happens every day on our desktops. And if it's not intentional architecture, you wind up into uh, wind up with an untestable mess. Yeah. And this is why you do test-driven development, because it designs better architecture. Yeah, I'm right there with you. You know, it's sort of like, I like your point that it happens daily on the desktop. Is that, you know, in order for any team to have success in their software delivery process, they have to adopt boundaries and different layers throughout the whole process, throughout the different systems. You know, like, you know, you have to create a boundary in your system so that you can, you know, test on one side and say, if this side of the boundary does X, I do Y and be able to say that with confidence. You have to design that into your system, you know. And if you're starting with the monolith and then just sort of, sort of like it kind of expands like fungally out to all these different areas without any, you know, specific decision of, hey, we're going to cut this here or put an API here, you know, do these type of things, then it becomes, it's almost impossible to create the boundary after the fact. Yeah. I think something you mentioned um, in the pre-show was the concept of virtual services. I think I know what you're talking about here. So let me give you how I think about this. So let's say that you have service A depends on service B and you want to do some like developing against service A, you might create like a, maybe like a fake or some sort of development version of service B that you can point service A to so you don't actually need to have a full running thing of service B. But that's only possible if you have some sort of like a boundary or integration point where you can 
sort of easily swap out what happens behind the boundary. Is that kind of what you're getting at with virtual services? Yeah, and actually we have, uh, I've put together, like I have a training deck internally where I talk about the rainbow, or I guess the, that's not the, the gradient of fakes that you can have to do this. Mm. But, uh, you know, I'll get to that. I want to back up just a second there because I think there's something we've skipped over, which is if we're going to take a monolith and we, we want to break it up into services, we really need to use domain-driven design. We need to map out the business capabilities. And then we need to focus on the interfaces because that's where defects happen. Mm -hmm. Mostly the interface boundaries because of miscommunication. And I think that when people go to conferences and they hear about microservices and they say, oh, I've got this small cohesive thing that does one thing. We're going to take our monolith and break it up into that. We can barely operate your monolith. You know what? Break it into two things. How to effectively test interfaces is core. And the more interfaces you have, the more failure uh, surface area you have if you don't understand how to effectively test interfaces. You know, the thing that I, I, I tell teams is, if, you know, we should be doing contract-driven development. Mm. We should be testing the interface before we test, we develop anything else. Let's make sure we have a solid contract between those two things. And so that comes back to, you know, virtual services. You know, starting out, I'll tell teams, look, all you need is a static JSON mock of the schema of the other thing. Just test that, right? And if you're providing a service, then you need to provide, I tell them, if it's REST, open API, that's tested, that you validated your service matches that open API contract. Mm -hmm. And from then it gets really easy. If, If you provide an open API contract to me, there's tools out there where I can go and take that API, the open API document and instantly spin up a virtual service. And what a virtual service is, is it's, it's more functional than a, a static JSON mock. It's a thing that runs. It's got an HTTP address I can go hit and it acts like it returns data to me when I hit requests, but it's recorded, repeatable. You know, I know where the, the boundary layers lie. I don't have to worry about you know, the test leaking out into a database or leaking out into another service. I'm having to take that scope into, you know, I can limit the scope of my test. It's a test is a scientific experiment. You know, we have to control our variables. We have to know what the boundaries are and control them so they're the same every single time. And so, yeah, virtual services are key to that. And if you don't understand them, you're trying to rake up into microservices. First, learn domain-driven design. Step one. And learn about virtual services because you're going to need them. Yeah. One thing I really like about this virtual service approach, and I I like your term, uh, Brian, virtual services. I think it's something a little bit different than like just fakes or mocks, right? It conveys something something more. One thing I like to do with the virtual services is you're able to also simulate more failure modes or different like states than you would be in a, if you had a running version of the quote real system, right? You can do things like, hey, what if there's no data? What if the service is down? What if it's latency? What if it's thrashing? Or there's all kinds of states that you can't easily represent if you're using a real service, but you can create in this sort of virtual or emulated world, you know? Yeah, I've used Montebank quite a bit. Montebank's an open source tool that you can record and replay virtual services. I mean, you can go and point it at another service, act as a proxy, record that response, and then have a set of responses. You can go in and code in that if I send you this, you're going to send me this error back. 
right? So that you mm-hmm. can have that controlled failure mode so you can verify how you respond to failure. Huh. And I'm probably jumping all over the place, but there's something else I, you hit on earlier when you're talking about what if you don't even own that? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I test my stuff. I, that's what I test. Right. You know, I, I don't test everybody else's stuff. If their stuff's broken, uh, I'm going to use a, a virtual copy of theirs. I don't have to worry about their break. And if their stuff's broken in production, I'll just open a ticket on them so your stuff's broken. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't fix it. Why would I spend time testing it? Yeah. Well, that also comes down to the ownership and boundaries of each individual thing. Like in a monolith, it, I think it's the easier argument to say that like, hey, in this big blob of code, maybe I can fix it. And you kind of get used to thinking like that. But if you had, say, you know, a service that was like owned, that you were dependent on by another team, it becomes, you know, less confident, maybe another team or organization. But you can still extrapolate out to the fact like, hey, you don't try, if you're integrating with Stripe, you don't own Stripe's API. You don't try to test against it. You just assume that it's behaving correctly and you test your behavior in regard to whatever their contract is. But for some reason, I don't know why this is, maybe you have some insight here, that people inside like engineering teams, they don't think like that with regards to things that are maintained by other members of that team. You know what I'm saying? It has something to do with, I think they're solving the wrong problems. You know, I'm trying to solve the problem of how do I have each service independently deployable in any sequence uh, to production at any time? How can I make it so that I can get really rapid feedback to test? So my Mm -hmm. tests have to be incredibly fast and efficient and effective, all of those, and solving that engineering problem. You know, I've seen teams where they've, they've pulled down their entire system, except the rest of the system was virtual services. So they had full control over that. But I mean, imagine if you had to pull down all of the databases for all those services because they're independent databases because they're microservices, right? Yeah. And then to run a test, you have to, of course, spin up those databases fresh so you have a, a, a pristine set of data And, oh, my God, I mean, just the time it takes. Can you imagine a CI cycle like that? Yeah, unfortunately, I've been in there. (laughs) Well, I've never built something like that because I need, I want to know in seconds that I'm broken, not minutes. Well, sure. But that's one of the other things that uh, is sort of one of like the levers to pull on in this thinking is like, let's just say, you know, you're a developer. You could think like, hey, maybe I'll run this whole system on my machine. It would work. But then how fast do you want your feedback? Do you want it in, you know, minutes, second, hours, days? Like choose an order of magnitude of speed and create the trade-offs that work for that particular objective. Well, and, and the test fails because this service over here that we're not even messing with right now. Yeah. Now, is it because I didn't spin it up correctly on my machine? It was broken at some point. Now I have to go in context, switch away from my work to go verify, to go play with the thing I'm not even messing with. Well, and... Are you even running the up-to-date version of that thing? Yeah. You know, like the so many times has it happened where nobody has pulled down the latest version of this thing and they did all this work and they tested it. It turns out like, oh, I haven't updated it on my machine for two months and now it's out of date. It doesn't even work in the first place. It's like, there's so many reasons why that, like the premise is just totally screwed from the beginning. You know, it doesn't lead you down the right path at all. So it's... Yeah, this is why solving the problem with CD is uh, the thing that we work on is continuous delivery is not the goal. Continuous delivery is the tool Mm. to make everything better. Because when you start going, okay, look, yeah, you're deploying every week. Now let's let's do it daily. Oh, I can't do it daily. Why not? Right? Let's go solve that problem. Okay, for CI, you need to get feedback in five minutes that everything is good. 
or less, preferably much less, mm -hmm. right? That's the entire build, everything on the CI server. So your tests have got to run in seconds because there's other stuff going on. Oh, no, we have all that. Well, why? Let's engineer this problem away because th these are critical quality steps in the flow that must happen. Yeah, I like that. It's just so you, you start just asking why enough times. and Oh, yeah, but, you know, there's a status quo, but you can break it. You don't have to just keep with that, but you have to, you know, do things differently. So I want to get your uh, advice on, let's say that, you know, a team, they have they have their monolith. Let's just stipulate that they've done like DDD and they're kind of ready to start splitting stuff off. And they're thinking, okay, what do I need to have? How do I need to like get my house in order for when I create the first like Greenfield microservice? Like if I'm thinking about virtual services, like what's your advice for teams in that situation? So let's, let's, uh, Think about the whole problem. You said it's a monolith. There's multiple, it depends on the size of monolith. Are we talking about a monolith maintained by multiple teams or by one team? Let's just say for the sake of discussion, it's one team. Okay, well, that's an easy problem. So what you do is you start, you've mapped out the business capabilities and you've got your domain diagram of what you want it to look like, is you find something that's relatively low risk as a capability, Okay figure out what the interface boundaries are going to be for that, establish that contract, establish how you're going to peel out the, that portion of the database because it needs to be an independent database, okay? And then pull it out. I would recommend that you've got a way inside the code to flip between the old behavior that's still there and the service so that you can go back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to assume that uh, hopefully, well, let's just assume worst case, you've got an untested monolith, Hmm. Yeah. In that case, you should test the monolith, that portion of monolith you're going to pull out and verify that behavior and then go and write a test for the microservice to verify it does the same thing, mm -hmm. right? But establish that contract. Once, you've, once you are happy that works and you're, you're comfortable and you've stabilized that, delete that old code and then think what the next one's going to be. Don't do a big bang. We're going to rewrite the entire thing in microservices because what's going to happen, you don't understand how to operate them. Yeah. It's not the same. There's a lot of complexity. You know, go read up on 12-factor app. Go read up on things around instrumentation for performance, instrumentation for how do we log better? I mean, how do we do everything better? Because it, you've just added a crap ton of complexity to operations to remove complexity from development. Uh, because each service is smaller and easier to, to think about. Mm -hmm. But overall, it's more complex operationally. Yeah. And you want them both. Yeah. So let's continue this hypothetical exercise. And let's say that um, maybe we have just a, like a well-tested, well-built service. And now another team is going to come in and they're going to try to expand this system out to another service and you know one service now depends on the other they've already done all this the stuff to have their boundaries do the testing and they're thinking okay well i understand they're you know clear that i know that my service depends on this thing it's maintained by other team i don't want to couple myself to this service in development i've heard about stuff like you know fakes, mocks contract testing virtual services whatever and they say okay yeah i understand why we need this but how do we do that? So what does that look like in practice in your experience? In practice or what it should be? <laughs> well, maybe let's take the ideal and then see how it falls apart in practice. 
you know, Paul Hammond has a blog post about, uh, he's got several actually on the subject of technical compatibility kits. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, what the ideal would be is that if you are depending on my service, that along with my service, I will also write a virtual service that matches the contract. I will test that my virtual service is correct. And I will have that virtual service someplace where you can pull it down and use that virtual service to verify uh, while you're building out that you've, you can match that contract. So that's the ideal is that I'm telling, I, I'm such a great provider to my customers. I care about you so deeply that I want us to talk really, really well. And you don't have to do all the heavy lifting of trying to fake me. I will fake myself and then you can go forward. Yeah. So this was one of the things that, we're going to go a little bit far back in time here, but one of the reasons why I got really excited about Docker was that it allowed teams who are building services to just, here, here's a Docker image. You can just run my thing. It can be real. It can be virtual. It could be whatever. And it's easy to just hang these off to all these consumers of these things, irrespective of, you know, the technical stack of the individual application. You know, like we're in a much better position now to achieve that uh, ideal than we were before. Yeah, but it also incentivizes people to go to that anti-pattern you talked about before because it's so easy for me to pull down your live service. And now I'm going to spin up a database. Now I'm going to test against the thing that, you know, you know, it's you, you do need to do live integration at some point in the pipeline, mm-hmm. but you don't need to be doing it on your desktop unless you've got really stable services that, have, that are completely deterministic, completely stateless. I mean, you know, that's fine. But, you know, when you're dealing with statefulness, you don't want to be dealing with that right when you're coding. It's just too much complexity. Yeah. So we've discussed the ideal here. And then what are some of the technical tools that people can use to create these, like the contracts or virtual services? Wiremark's a good one. Montebank. So Wiremark is Java only, though. And for what we do, we deal with so many teams. We really look for language non-specific solutions. Mm-hmm. So Montebank is a, a node service, but it it's just a node service. You can use it with any language. It's got hooks for lots of languages. We use that. I recently came across Prism, which is really cool. That's one where I can just take Prism and point it at an open API document and it starts a service. Oh. And that's wicked cool. Another one that I, I really like is Dread. So with Dread, I can point an open API doc at it that's mine and verify that API doc with Dread with no asserts, except for negatives. I have to assert like failure modes, but for, for like 200 codes, I don't even have to write asserts. It'll tell me if I'm broken or not. And so anything I can do to stop me from having to type, because I'm super lazy, and get the confidence I need to ship 5 p.m. on Friday while I've got you know support on call rotation and I'm taking my wife out to a movie, that's what I want. You know, I want tools like that. Do any of those tools work with GraphQL? Hey, I don't do a lot of GraphQL. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, GraphQL is kind of a new thing for me. Is I've not really used it, but it's sort of starting to just eat more of the world, it looks like. I'm, I'm trying to remember, because another area was using GraphQL. We were looking at some of those things, and I don't remember where we landed on it. But somebody does. There's a tool out there for it, mm-hmm. right? This is, this is too common a problem. Yeah. Along with open API, even you've got tooling around what's it's called uh, um, async API. So now you can do PubSub with huh. defined contracts and tooling around that as well. Oh, that's interesting. 
So you, you also mentioned uh, like what should happen in the CI process. So you know you'll create some you know some virtual service whatever, and then you'll run some some tests against that. So are there some tools that can do that part for you? Because I'm kind of imagining that there's two ends of this. There's the one which is, hey, I have a spec document, start something for me. And then maybe the other end is you have something running validated against the spec. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we do it in our build. I mean, I, I'm able to just kick off my build and, and the, the test will kick off the virtual service and mm-hmm. go assert against that and tear it back down. I just do that in the test code, you uh-huh. know, like Montebank, like I said, it's got hooks where you can hook into JUnit or Mocha or Jest or whatever. Mm-hmm. The hooks to start and stop the Montebank service, right? Right. And it, it takes half a second to spin up. Mm, I see. Okay. So then is now we're coming back to the exercise. You know, you have, you know, service A and service B, you know, the producers of, of these services, they're giving out like contracts and virtual services. And now... Like it, kind of everything is fine, almost, because if you're the consumer, you can use these things. You can develop almost, like, almost fine. Almost. So where's the remaining the remaining percentage? How do you know the mock's correct? Yeah. How do you know the virtual service is correct? You don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to have a test for the test. So what we have is we've got, so let's go back to the goals. We have continuous delivery. Continuous delivery, if you're doing it well, you can do release the latest changes on demand. And after you push code to master, there's no human touches. None. Okay. You also want to make sure that all the tests in the pipeline are as deterministic as possible. So you want to remove as much state from the pipeline as you can. Mm -hmm. Now, for most things, you don't need state in the pipeline. You can verify all of your behavior in a stateless way as long as you have a stateful way to verify the tests that are using test doubles. And so what you do is you'll have and interface contract test. So this is maddening for me is that there's no domains language for testing, right? You know, if you ask me what an integration test is, you ask two other people, you're going to get five different answers about what an integration test is. Internally, we've created a glossary for integration tests. So I'm going to use our definitions. Our definition of an integration test for interfaces would be, I am doing an integration test against a mock. Okay. I'm verifying the communication paths, but not behavior. So that's the pattern we use for integration tests. Contract test would be, I need to go and verify that that mock is correct by using a live contract. And so in that case, you're dealing with a stateful test. Well, I don't want it in my pipeline, but I can still run it on a schedule. And depending on the volatility of your contracts, you can run daily, run weekly, is you go and run basically an end-to-end test against that contract. And you have to deal with the data uh, set up and all that stuff. But what you're really testing for is not the overall behavior of the system. You're testing again. Is this API still valid, right? Did anything break? Did my provider go and change their contract in a breaking way without versioning? Yeah. Or did I, and so all of those problems. So you go test for those. So you have to have a test for the test. But it does allow you to daily deliver very, very fast. I mean, CI, we're talking about, I need to get on master several times a day as a developer, and I can't spend all my time twiddling my thumbs waiting for the test to spin up. Mm-hmm. So does this um, work like, let's say you have some cron build of some CI, whatever, you know, midnight yeah. or whatever that time is, it's going to run some job that hits the service, like pulls down like the, I don't know, some endpoint that serves you up the contract and then you have it from there and you load it into your test suite or? Yeah, well, the way I run them actually is I'll, run, I'll use the same code 
the same test code to run both tests. That's, of course, if you have two tests testing the same thing, one of them's wrong. Yeah. Right? And so I'll, I'll just set the configuration to either use the virtual service URL or use the, user, the, the real services URL. And then, yeah, you just kick it off on the schedule and it runs. And you come back in and when it fails, you go and say, well, why did it fail? It didn't fail, that, you know, because you have to go and discover, did it fail because of data? Did it fail because the service was down? Or did it fail because the contract is broken? You have to do triage, mm-hmm. right? And then you go, if it failed, and if it was, and then when you get to the failure reason, then you fix that and run it again. So in this scenario where you actually run the test against a live version of the service, yeah. you're naturally going to have to set some boundaries against what you can do in the test because you don't necessarily want to be like manipulating data or calling some functionalities of that service in question, right? So like, right. where do you define the boundaries? Like, what are you specifically testing in those tests against the live service? Well, it depends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, really, you're trying to do everything you can to get the information that you want about the behavior of that interface without broadening out the scope so much that you start cascading uh, and expanding the size of the test. And so that's an engineering problem. But that's what you're trying to do is I want to focus on, is this interface correct? Do I understand the schema? Am I getting the responses I expect? Mm-hmm. But you don't ever want to test for, I sent you, I need a name, and you responded with Fred, and I'm going to test that I got Fred. Right. You want to test that I got a string called name. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. But yeah. I don't know, I find this, to me, like this approach is intuitive because first of all, like I love testing. I think it by default for me, test-driven first, anything else is, I can't even wrap my head around what that's like at this point. So by like adopting this kind of workflow, it naturally fits TDD because you can only focus on the thing that you're actually responsible for, for the code that you're writing. And then you assume that the rest of the world is sane. You write your test against you know the specified behavior of whatever the integration point is. And then as you said, make sure that you test your test that you have the correct definition of what this boundary is. Get that feedback loop as fast as possible and then just put the pedal to the metal and go. But for other people, it just seems... Um, almost like hearsay or an anti-pattern. I don't, I, I'm not sure how to sort of convey the importance of this to people who don't uh, look at, see it, you know? Full disclosure, I don't love testing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I love riding my motorcycle. I don't, <laughs> code, I don't code for a hobby. I code to solve business problems, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it well. I'm also too lazy not to test. And because I get tired of coming back and having to refix the same thing over and over again, I really like new problems. And every time I don't write tests concurrently with code, I wind up with terrible code that I have to go and redo and undo. And it takes me like three times as long because I'm not testing. So I'm just too lazy not to test. Yeah. Right. And also, you, you know, don't the, like, uh, you like new problems. You're too lazy not to test. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I like new problems. Uh, I like code that's testable. I like, code that's readable testing code means it's going to be right readable and testable you know it's just a better way of working oh and the other thing is that my goal is to be able to compete in the marketplace with my competitors which means that i need to be able to learn faster than they do which means i need to go to production faster than they can which means i have to have a really solid pipeline to get that done 
which means I have to test my damn code. And also, I'm a professional software developer. I deliver working solutions. Any script kitty can pump out code. Yeah, so true. I mean, you just kind of described, just mirrored my own internal thinking, right? It's like there's sort of, but the word that you use there, and I've actually said that exact same phrase in other conversations, which is, you know, you consider yourself a professional software developer. So that implies a certain set of requirements, a certain way of thinking about the quality of your work while you're doing it, you know, and there's that whole chain of thought that um, kind of leads up to this, this is why I do all the things that I do. And I'm not going to deviate from that ideal because then I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, I, I think a movie that every software developer should watch is Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Oh, yeah. Right? Master your craft, right? Have pride in your work. If you don't have pride in this work, just go get another job, mm. right? But if you're going to do this, let's do it as the, the best we possibly can. Yeah. Well, and that's why I think that these ideas are so important because this idea of, you know, keeping teams independent, giving them autonomy and ownership over their things such as they can deploy quickly to production with confidence It's selfish in the sense that if you work in that environment, like you as an individual developer will kind of get that happy feedback of the work that I'm doing is delivering value quickly. But that also empowers all of the other people and teams in your organization to do the same thing. It has a sort of natural laddering up into the business results, which we all care about, but like kind of seem to get lost along the way for some, like in some cases. Well, the other thing is that the thing I've experienced, the thing that teams we've helped have experienced is that if you're actually doing this properly, if you're focusing on CD and you're focused to, to shrink out the waste and you're focusing on testing to improve your ability to get feedback, that you've got less support and you sleep better at night. You have higher morale. You get to find new ways to get things done. You're not always churning and churning and churning. And it's, you have a happier, high morale team. And it takes a lot of teamwork as a team to do continuous integration. It takes intense teamwork to do real CI, which means that we work better together because we have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and we like being together, honestly. And, uh, and so all of these skills are required to live a better life and have a more humane working environment. Yeah, I know. It's funny that it's like when I started a long time ago, this like a journey through like into DevOps and all the stuff that we're talking about now, it was not necessarily with the intent of like creating a better life or a more humane working environment. There was like, you know, I had this frustration. There was this problem and like, oh, hey, if I do automated testing, that will solve this thing. Oh, and then this will give me this thing. But now I, looking back, the thing that's like most important to me is just having like a happy and productive work environment. Yeah. And everything else can come from that because if you're not happy, it's kind of like what I got from, the unicorn project and the five ideals, like one of them being that psychological safety, this all kind of feeds back into like, you have to be in the right mindset to even approach this work in the first place because of how much really it like, takes from your mind and from how much you have to focus on it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's focus, flow, and joy, right? I mean, you, you, it's a more joyful way to work and happy developers. I mean, I, talk to VPs about this all the time, that happy, you may not care about happy developers. You may think that we just need to be beat over the head and go faster until you wind up on the, the front of the, of the New York Times or any other national newspaper 
with a data breach because we were afraid to talk to you about it or we're too busy heads down pushing out features to go and look around and, and keep our heads up and look out for problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, happy developer development teams deliver more secure, better business solutions. Yeah. So have you in bring the conversation back a little bit, but sure. like let's say that you you know you have a team and we're talking about like, hey, you know, you should work like this, these virtual services, contracts, like boundaries, all this type of stuff. And uh, you know, there's this sort of initial skepticism, like, hey, this sounds like this is actually gonna be more complicated, this is gonna slow me down, like I don't really like care about all this stuff. What do you advise in that scenario? I don't. I never come in with solutions. I come in with the problem. Mm-hmm. Right? Problem is, why can't we get to master today? Why can't you, every developer on the team, why can't we get to master today? Right? Mm-hmm. What's, what's blocking that? At least once a day. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's sit down and solve that problem. And then we say, oh, well, you've got this interface testing thing you're doing over here. How can we fix that? And then we say, well, there's, here's some options here. And there's what the options do. And they pick one. And then it's their solution. Right. Right. And so if a team doesn't want to live a better life, fine. You know, I'll go work with another team that wants to live a better life. But if they want to live a better life, then let's solve the problems together. And then we solve the problems together. And the solutions become obvious. Hmm. Yeah, that's so true. It's like it's when you work in these kind of, at least in my experience, when you work in these kind of facilitating type roles, like these sort of collaboration support roles, why beat a dead horse? If somebody doesn't want to solve the problem, then you know, go work with somebody else. It's just a better use of the time. Like everybody will be happier in that in that yeah, interaction. My, my time's way too valuable to argue with a developer who doesn't want a better life. I've got a lot <laughs> more developers who want better lives. <laughs> I think that's something that I'll have to take to heart. It's like I'll just ask you, like, hey, do you want to have a better life? Yes or no? If you can't, if you can't say yes, like right away, then you know, so huh? I don't know about that. Sounds like it's too much effort. But, yeah, you know, and if you think what you're doing is fine and you're not going to test your code, you know, perhaps I can give you a flyer to the next job fair for a competitor because if you're going to drag somebody down, drag them down. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's my that's the last resort, right? It's like perhaps you'd be happier happier somewhere else. I mean, I have no power, right? But still, I mean, it really does speak to culture too, and like expectations in the team, right? Like if you're in a team who's doing TDD and you're some people are saying. I don't think we should do that or I'm not going to do that. Well, it's like, well, maybe you should go somewhere else then, you know, it's like that team over there doesn't care about their quality either. You should go over there. Yeah. On this team, we care about quality. Yeah. You know, you can pick on like one end of these things, which is like, Hey, maybe you want to go faster, or, like improve this level of quality. But it, it always kind of comes back to one of these aspects of entering culture in a way, which is, I think the hardest thing to actually change you know, I, I wrote a uh, I wrote a blog post a while back. One of the, the my second favorite subject after testing is metrics because we have to measure things correctly to know how we're doing and know what to improve. Okay, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the things about metrics is you're always supposed to measure them in groups because you can game anyone or you can hurt things by only focusing on one. But I had this blog post about the only metric that matters. And it told the story of a trip I took out to Nellis Air Force Base uh, as a guest of a retired lieutenant colonel to go take photographs of the Thunderbirds. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't an air show. And I watched the Thunderbirds go do their air show to launch two airplanes. The ground crew did the air show thing that they always do to launch two airplanes, right? And the, the Thunderbird one broke. Uh, and they took about 10 minutes to do triage on it and launched him in Thunderbird 7, the standby plane. 
just it's just business as usual, just doing our job, right? Yeah. The high morale. And I, I I summed all that up with the 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 metric that matters is pride, right? Mm. If you have a team that owns the problem, owns the solution, and owns the outcomes of, of how they solve the problem, right? Like good or bad, pager goes off, they answer it. And they then they care about their end user and they have pride in what they do. I'm going to have to think about that because I really like that. It's one of the things that sort of like we talk about this like separation of like monolith and microservices. It comes down to ownership and ownership is one of those things that plays into, you know, an individual team's pride in the work that they do. Because, you, you know, it's hard it's hard to be proud of something that you're just kind of a smaller piece in and spread across all this thing. But if you can say, Hey, this is a thing that I did. This is what it does. This is yeah. who it serves. And you can really have high pride there. Yeah. We built this. It's important for this reason. We believe in the mission we're serving with our code. Yep. So that's what we got to do. We got to connect that down to the work that we do on the day-to-day basis. hundred percent. Well, Brian, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to talk to you about much more than I expected you would talk about, but it's always fun. I, I love those kind of conversations. Um, I, is, I love everything about this topic. Yeah. Well, is there any uh, advice or anything you'd like to leave listeners with before we go? Uh, you know, I'd encourage everybody to read the Unicorn Project. It really, I think, speaks to the pain we have as developers when we're living in environments that should be better and some guidance on how to fix it. You know, I've got blog posts where I have rants that I've turned into hopefully positive outcomes on Medium. If you look for, it's B-D-F-I-N-S-T on Medium. It's the five-minute DevOps series. And they're just, mm-hmm. and I've got some really good rants out there, especially if you're in retail. And uh, anybody can reach me on LinkedIn. I love talking about these things. Uh, happy to have an argument with somebody if they want to say I'm wrong, um, <laughs> because I've got data to show I'm not. And I'm happy to present the data. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Yeah. Well, and all of that will be linked at uh, smallbatches.fm. And I also have done an episode on small batches, actually on the Unicorn Project and uh, the Phoenix Project. It's kind of a combo episode. Uh, so listeners, check that out if you're interested in that. I also recommend that you read those two, two books. And uh, one last thing I want to ask is I know that you've spoken a lot at uh, conferences. I think you spoke at DevOps Enterprise Summit before. Is there any yeah. specific uh, talks you have online you think the listeners should check out? Well, not coming up. Uh, I, I should be at All Day DevOps next year. And uh, as soon as CFP is open up for DevOps Enterprise Summit, I'll be submitting for those. I was thinking more about ones that you've already done. Listeners could watch. Or oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, there's several on YouTube. If you uh, for DevOps Enterprise Summit, I've done talks there, 2017, 2018, and 2019. All the DevOps did a talk about why teams can't CD. You say you should also check out uh, my wife, Dana Fenster. She's got some good talks out there as well, mm-hmm. and some we've done together. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, we, uh, we pair. Power couple. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I don't know what that's like. No, it's it's fun. It's fun because we we play off each other well uh, when we're on stage together. Well, that's cool. I'll have to check that out. I think it'll be cool to watch. All right, Brian. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, hopefully we can talk again sometime. Yeah, really appreciate that. It was fun. All right, everybody. See you in the next episode. You've just finished another episode of Small Batches, a podcast on building a high-performance software delivery organization. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, go to smallbatches.fm. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping.
like the sound of small batches? This episode was produced by Podsworth Media. That's podsworth.com.